Hi, I'm Adam Spencer and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today, we have... Hi, I'm Tim Fung. I'm the co-founder and the CEO here at Airtasker. We're Australia's number one local marketplace for services. Let's go right back. What was your very, 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 very first exposure to the, the, this Australian startup ecosystem? Well, I think, um, you know, during, during university, I, you know, started up a, a couple of things with, with friends, but I, I wouldn't really call them like startups uh, per se in the way that um, most people probably would assume or think about them now in terms of like technology and, you know, investing into, you know, getting venture investment and stuff like that. So um, with that sort of lens on, I would say um, it was back in 2009, I had just left Macquarie where I had um, spent five years as an analyst. Yeah. I was working in a modeling agency called Chic Management. And um, I met the co-founder of the, the agency or the, the co-owner, I should say, of the agency was one of the founding directors of Optus. And he uh, gave me the opportunity to work with him on a, on a startup idea that he had, which was to set up an online-only mobile virtual network operator on MVNO. And so, you know, he asked me to put together a pitch deck for him and, you know, we just went out and, and raised money and it was a great opportunity to watch him build a startup, which I just didn't know was like a really a thing that you could do. Obviously, I knew that startups existed, but I didn't um, get a close feel until then. Right. So, yeah, so we were talking 2009, like fish burners uh, didn't really kick off until 2012. And a lot of people kind of, especially in Sydney, say, 2011 2012 is when things really started to you know ramp up a fair bit back in 2009 what was visible to you like what when you looked around like what companies did you look to what who, people organizations that were doing stuff in the startup world well it was 2009 that that we had sort of started off with with amazing and i think it was in 2010 that i started to you know, by going around and doing the the capital raising for Amazim and and touching base with with people, you know, through that process, I started to to see a few things. I think one of the real interesting things was uh, the whole uh, German uh, contingent that kind of existed, and you know, Amazim was actually uh, managed and co-founded by by some German folks that we had brought over uh, from Germany, and they immediately sort of like got us into um, into a bit of an ecosystem. And what I realized is, uh, for example, Rocket Internet. Um, had a presence in Australia with things like Groupon that was just expanding around 2010. So I think uh, there were companies like scale companies like Groupon. There was um, Spritz, which was also a German co-founder, a guy named Justus Hammer, partnered up with Dean McAvoy, which is an Australian guy, but actually uh, raised money from uh, from some German uh, from some German VCs, um, which is how they really scaled uh, that business. And it was actually quite eye-opening for me. I didn't realize how much of a you know, because the German tech ecosystem is actually quite advanced, I think, you know, not, not quite as big as Silicon Valley and stuff, but, but quite, quite large. And it had quite a big presence here in, here in Sydney. Um, so that was sort of the, the first um, bubble that I um, kind of got uh, connected with. And then, you know, of course, there were the folks from Fishburners too, which we used to hang out in. Yeah, feel free if I, you know, to, to pull me up too if I skip over any important details. But, you know, so Amazing was 2009 to 2012. 
was did something happen during your time helping to build that company like can you can you tell me the origin story of airtasker how, how did that where that idea come from did it was it something related to working at amazing well i think um so it wasn't directly related to working uh, at amazing but it definitely was influenced by that so so uh, when we started amazing uh, one of the first things that i did is actually bought in uh, one of my uni friends a guy named john o'louis uh, he was a telco uh, engineer and was working at IBM uh, at the time. And I pulled him into um, into Amazim and said, you should come and join this thing. It's like looking really exciting. We need a, um, a telco uh, project manager in there. So come in and help us build it. Once we had sort of done that first sort of like two years of really getting the company set up, we started getting itchy feet. And so we would uh, catch up every day in the kitchen and just talk about new ideas that, that we could start. Because, you know, Amazim wasn't our company. It was, uh, we were working uh, for that company. We were, we were the founding team members, but, you know, it wasn't, we weren't big equity holders. So mm. we got itchy feet. We started talking a lot. Um, I was moving apartments at the time. And um, I actually asked another friend of ours, um, Ivan, to come and help me move because uh, he's got a truck that he uses to do deliveries for his business. And this just got me thinking, is like, why do we ask friends and family to do all these kinds of jobs when there's so many people out there looking for a job? Um, and yet, you know, you go and hustle your friends for this. And it just made us realize that it's really hard to like connect with people in your local community. And it's really hard to like build a, a trusted relationship with them. And that's why like, you know, when, when you're hiring someone for a job, you go through this like really laborious process and, and it's worthwhile. But if you want to just hire someone for like, you know, a job to help you move on the weekend for $500 or $300 or something, there just wasn't a way to do that in a low friction way. Mm. And so John and I kept talking about this. And um, I think that by being part of Amazim and seeing a company go from zero to something, we both were like, oh, you know, it is actually possible to do this. Um, and that gave us the, I guess, the kick up the butt to go and to go and start a company. Yeah, such a, such a, you know, standing around the kitchen chatting about ideas. And then, you know, how many years later, millions of dollars ASX listed, something you know i don't want to skip over all the amazing details that that got you from there to to here but before i we dive deeper into the air tusker story big big jump between celebrity management to ceo of uh, an asx listed company the, the, the fashion part is there because i see you've got you've got a few other things in here joe button as well is there an interest in fashion <laughs> I wouldn't say so. No. So my connection to, and you know, you can probably tell by the way I dress, people laugh at me now because I'm, I'm always in an Airtasker t-shirt. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I think the interest in, in um, celebrity management was that I did always have an interest in, in sort of sports management and um, I'm really passionate about Formula One and motorsports and things like that. And actually at the time I was trying to help a, a, um, a young kid named Warren White who's uh, Mark Webber's. Uh, third cousin. So if you remember, Mark Weber was a, a was a Formula uh, One driver, yep. and we were trying to help him, you know, um, build up uh, his career. And so I was actually interested more in sort of like talent representation. And at the same time, I was watching Entourage, so you know, I liked Ari Gold, and so I thought, hey, you know what, I should try and do something, you know, creative and learn how this is done. And I think one sort of commonality between all these things is like I don't mind sort of just going in to learn about stuff. And so I actually quit my job at, at Macquarie. I went and joined this um, modeling agency, um, but it wasn't really to like make money or anything. It was just like to learn something new. And, you know, I think that like making money is great. Like business is important. And most people who tell you that, you know, money doesn't matter at all. It's probably, you know, 
there's only some truth in that. So it's good to like have a business and make money and stuff. But I think the starting point is usually go and do something that you're interested in and, and try to learn about it. And if you do that, over a, you know a few times, then then you're probably going to make some money out of it, which is which is good. What would you say is maybe the the biggest either either out of Amazims, you know, your time there, or as a talent agent? Like, is it, is there any transferable skills that you took out of those two experiences that helped kick off Airtasker? Yeah, I'd say actually quite a lot. I'd say the number one thing that um, I think was important in the early days of, of Airtasker was actually the storytelling of being able to take a big picture problem, break it down into like um, more understood problems and then be able to sort of convey to somebody how you're going to, how you're going to go and solve those problems. And that's actually like a pretty common skill across all of these things. When we were talking about talent representation, it would be like, Hey, you know, we're trying to do a Nike sponsorship. So here's, you know, the celebrity that we've got, you're trying to convey to your customers that Nike is all about, you know, empowering women to you know, um, be able to get out and, and become their own, become a successful athlete, and so we can give you, you know, Michelle Bridges, for example, a, a fitness trainer, and we're gonna, you know, uh, that's how we're gonna solve your problem. And I think that same thing with Amazim. It was like, hey, there's low cost, um, you know, all the mobile plans out there are total ripoff. Um, we're gonna solve it, and here's how we're gonna do it. And you know, breaking that down step by step. And it's the same thing with Airtask. One of the biggest things that we had to do early on was kind of paint that there's this big problem that exists out there. People cannot connect with other trusted local service providers in their community, be able to break that down into like something that's actually solvable and then actually to be able to, you know, take people on that journey and, and show them how uh, you're going to solve that problem. And I think that's common across, you know, starting any business. You So you started Airtasker in 2012, early 2012, and then later that year you decide to start Tankstream Labs a, how did you have enough time to do that? And B, where did that idea come from to, to start a co-working space? Yeah, it's actually a great like organic story actually. So, and it actually does tie everything together. So one of um, when we started Amazing, we we brought on board uh, a group called the Bridge Lane Group, um, and Marcus Marcus Kalbetzer is the uh, is the the man behind that behind that company and. He came on board as a Mason's first Australian venture investor. Then when we started Airtasker, uh, Jono and I, uh, you know, we just started working on it. And uh, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I want in. Like, uh, like I want to get behind this. So he actually became, you know, one of our biggest angel investors. At the time, we were actually uh, renting our space at a Mason, renting our space from Marcus, who owned the whole building. And so when we started Airtasker, he said, you know what, you can just have some space. I've got an unleased floor. I got a completely empty floor. It's a construction site right now, but you guys can just like set up a desk and, and just go work in the corner for free. And so we're like, that, that's awesome because we have no money. So that'd be really good. Uh, so we literally just started working in this uh, construction site on, on um, level one of the building. But then we'd like meet with other startup folks. You know, I think it was like the guys from PayPal we had to meet because we wanted to integrate them. We had the guys from Centiar who actually helped us build the first version of the app and they would come in for meetings with us. And they're all like, how did you get like office space? Because usually like back then it was really like, you know, a five-year lease or you can't have an office. You need to work from home or work from your garage. And so they're like, this is a sweet deal. And so we said, oh, you know what? You can just pull up a desk and start working over here as well if you want. And over um, over time, Marcus was like, hey, this is actually like there's quite a lot of people who want this. 
like, why don't we just, you know, actually make this a thing? And so um, we we just started uh, that way. But by the time we'd sort of started Tankstream Labs, it was sort of 30% full. And um, it just really, really grew from there because people just, you know, there was just a really clear demand for, for having an office on a, on a sort of month-to-month basis instead of a five-year lease. And I must say... I were, when we were doing this and we were starting Airtask at the same time, I was like, oh, geez, this is a much easier business than Airtasker because, you know, Airtask was really, really, really slow. And yet Tankstream Labs was kind of like, hey, you know, six months later, we're totally full and we need to start up a new floor. <laughs> so I was a little bit tempted to, uh, to switch tacks, but um, thankfully we stuck it out with Airtasker. Yes. Um, how do you start a company like Airtasker, you know, multiple two-sided marketplace kind of deal like what let's just go maybe first couple of months like what what were you thinking so i think actually we didn't think too much which was actually kind of healthy in some sense like i think that when you actually try to map out like how you're going to get from zero to something you know sizable and attractive you can often wheel spin Mm. because usually the path is not linear like for example if you look at google now and you go okay well i want to start a company and I want it to be like Google. And you actually said, okay, well, what are all the things that Google has? They've got like this massive advertising model. They've got, um, you know, offices all over the world. They've got free lunches. And you try to like map out like how you're going to build that in a linear way. Yeah. Um, you'd almost certainly go, oh my gosh, this can't be done. And you're just not going to do it. Yeah. Um, whereas if you just kind of start out and just go, you don't get that wheel spinning effect. And, and that's what we did with Airtasker. We were like, look, we want this thing to exist because it'd be awesome. And then we were kind of like, well, in order to do this, we're going to have to raise a bunch of money because we have to build a platform. We're going to have to start, you know, investing in marketing, et cetera. And so we raised um, about $1.4 million, which we were thankfully able to do because we had a bit of a track record with Amazim. Mm. Like people knew us and they were like, oh, well, you, you were successful in building a company. So, you know, I'll give you another crack. Yeah. The great thing about raising $1.4 million, and this was like, I think that's actually quite a lot of money. Like in in today's stance, like everyone's raising that sort of money. But back then, people were like, oh, wow, that's a huge amount of money. But what it kind of did is it was the equivalent of jumping off a cliff and, you know, you've got all these ingredients, you know, you've got all these parts as I build the plane on the way down. Yes. And that was actually quite healthy because I think that we had no idea what we were doing. But we, when we looked at this bank balance and it was just going down every single month, we're like, holy crap, we better just do something. And I, I, I say like with like real transparency and honesty, I think that was actually an important ingredient was just we don't have time to think too much. We don't have time to plan too much. We've just got to do the next step. Just think about the next step and, and get that. And for us, that was all about getting people to post tasks because we were like, if a posted task from a customer equals a job opportunity for a tasker mm. and so we were like we need to create job opportunities because we need taskers but the only way we're going to get that is if we can get some customers and so we just um did everything that we could to bring in um the customer side of the the marketplace and you know i think most people would not have the stomach for the amount of cash that we had to burn in those early stages to to, to be able to do that because it's, it's pretty scary one you know you've got a ticking time bomb in terms of like the cash balance going down Two is that you got a lot of naysayers. You know, you got a lot of people saying like, there's no way that's going to work. And, you know, these guys are just going to blow up $10 million and then walk off into the sunset and no one wants to be that person. Yep. So I think, um, yeah, it was really important that we just jumped off the cliff and uh, were f- kind of forced into it from after that first capital raise. It was just sort of like, um, it was a bit of a forcing function. 
So it was just that North Star. The main thing driving you guys was get job postings. That's right. And that's also a bit unintuitive because most of the startups in Australia now, I'd, I'd roughly classify as three things. There's sort of e-commerce. There's software like SaaS companies, like building software. Yeah. And then there's marketplaces. And most of the successful companies that are out there, well, many of them are software companies like SaaS companies, you know, whether it's Canva or whether it's Zero or Safety Culture, yeah. or any of these things. And the contemporary uh, methodology there is, to some degree, build a great piece of software and then it'll grow by itself. And then, you, you know, you've got to pour fuel on the fire, but, you know, first build great software, then scale. The difference in a marketplace is actually this software isn't the product. The liquidity and the whole marketplace community itself is kind of the product. Yeah. And so <laughs> you kind of can't invest too much in the software. You actually got to invest into building the community ASAP. Um, and, and that's why it's, it's kind of unintuitive because a lot of the tips that you're getting are from people who have successfully built software companies telling you, build the software, build the software. If it's good, it'll just work. And that isn't really true for a, for a network effect um, product. So let's just compare the two for a sec, the software companies and the, and the marketplace companies. In terms of operations, what is the main difference? Like what, that you're foc- what are you focusing on in the, from an operational standpoint in the uh, software companies compared to the marketplace companies? Well, I would say like you would see it at a couple of location level. You have a truckload more in marketing and acquisition uh, much earlier mm. in the marketplace because you understand that the product is the network effect. It's the, you know, the community that you've built. And so if you're there tinkering with the software, you're not building that community. And, and that community is a big part of the customer experience. For example, if you have an awesome software platform you know, for a marketplace, but there's just no taskers on it, or you know, in, in other cases, there's no, no one selling products or whatever, yeah. it doesn't matter how good it is, it'll suck. For customers the customers will be like this is crap like wow the browsing functionality is really really fast the latency is incredible but there's nothing to buy on this, um, on this website and so i think that's different compared to say um i would you know great example canva which would be like build that you know um, that designer interface and make it kick ass i mean if you just do that i.e just build the software more and more and more people are going to hear about it and, mm. and, and use it and that's how you get to scale. So yeah, two two very different approaches, I think. Let's switch gears a bit. We're going to back to Tankstream Labs. What's the origin? Or like, what's the name? The origin of the name? Can you tell me about that? <laughs> yeah, it's totally uh, uncreative. Uh, basically, <laughs> if you if you look at the laneway out the back of the the address, it's called Tankstream Way. And so we we're like, let's take that and then change it to Labs. <laughs> Um, but but I, I actually do think the labs component of it was was an interesting little thing. I think um, you know what we've realised is Tankstream. It's not really a property uh, company at all. Like it really is just a community, and it's, it's similar to Fishburners and similar to Stone and Chalk and some of those other um, really great communities that got built. People aren't there to. They're not paying for their desk. They're paying to mm. come to a place every day where they get to like mingle and learn from other people and and. You know, especially when you're in a six-person startup or something, or a two-person startup or a one-person startup, um, you know, having that shared space and that shared sort of like knowledge and connections is pretty valuable. Yeah. So you you seem to be in the business of building communities. 
yeah, I didn't really think of it outright that way, but I suppose that that is true. And actually, I think that's a really, you know, that is the most powerful thing about the internet. Like, yeah. like when you really comes down to it, most successful internet companies are somehow built on community because that is really the fabric of what the internet can do that, you know, couldn't be done before. Yeah. You now have these sort of scaled places where people can come together and, and interact. I think, yeah, most of the big companies or the successful ones are, are effectively somehow leveraging, you know, community or network effect. Well, that, that community theme is a good segue into, you know, the rise of the ecosystem in Australia, like the growth and evolution of the ecosystem kind of coincided with, you know, iPhones and, and social networking. Aside from that being a driver of, you know, helping to bring the startup community together, what else would you say helped really you know, kick things off in Australia? Yeah, I think um, one of the most uh, powerful things about any kind of ecosystem, I think, is that you need to kind of have proven success and proven experience. Mm. Um, and that's why it is sort of like a compounding effect. Like if you look at like why Silicon Valley or like San Francisco is like so awesome, it's because you've got like, you know, I guess you had folks in the 60s building silicon chips and then, you know, that experience and that capital got pushed into the next era, you know, you know, personal computing or whatever. And then that gets pushed into the next era of like, you know, um, uh, you know, e-commerce on the internet. That, that just keeps compounding. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think what we're starting to see in the story, which is like so, so, so exciting, is people coming out of some of these organizations or having these experiences, either building companies or learning from, uh, you know, working at other successful companies and they're getting funded now because there's trust there. People go, like, oh, well, they know what they're doing. Great, let's let's go fund that. And it just keeps compounding. And I guess like the VC then is kind of like the fuel to that fire that, that sort of lubricates that process happening over and over and over again. But mm. what I'm so excited by is like, you know, seeing these companies that are getting funded now and, you know, it'll be like multi-generational. It'll be like, yep, I, I was there at Lassian early days learned how to do that, then built this company, exited that, and now I'm doing this company. And like that's just really, really, really exciting. And I wonder if there's like any way that we can like turbocharge that even more. Yeah. You know, like bringing people back. You know, Airtasker, I'm really fortunate. You know, three of our leadership team members we've, you know, we've brought back from experience, you know, either in the US or the UK. And I think that's really great because it sort of like injects that experience straight back into the Australian ecosystem. Yeah, I think I actually just noticed, is it your CMO ex-Facebook? Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of funny, but our CMO is ex-Facebook. Our CTO is, you know, eight years at Amazon in Seattle. And then Patrick is our is our chief product officer. He's, he's come from Zip and also previously founded an Exeter company in the US. And so, yeah, it's really awesome to be able to, you know, I'm learning so much from them. Um, as much as you know, I'm also their manager, so it's really good, like that exchange of um, experience and skills. How important do you think density is to an ecosystem? Do you mean like geographic density? Population. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I do think that it's potentially becoming less important because of how much stuff is happening on on Zoom and mm, you know, video yeah. and all that sort of thing. Um, but certainly like with TechStream Labs, even though, you know, we have had the pandemic and that obviously did cause a bunch of people to, you know, go work from home instead of in an office, people 
you know, are sort of physical beings still. And the fabric of sort of the metaverse and like video calling and all that sort of stuff, it's just not yet able to replace what physical connection does. So I imagine, you know, we're in a bloody funny place right now because of the the COVID um, stuff. Mm. But once things normalize, I do think people are going to want to have, you know, a lot more time in, in physical spaces together. And so I think density will matter again. Um, albeit it's not five days a week for sure mm. i think you know we're, we're working to something like one or two days a week but uh yeah interesting that you mentioned density because um i think there's sort of the geographic density there's also the time density i.e an air tasker where we <laughs> it's everything's marketplace but we talk about network effect in the office too you know if everyone comes in one day a week but everyone chooses a different day to come in like that's kind of crap <laughs> if everyone chooses the same day to come in, that day will actually be really awesome. Um, so I think that, that that's also important, that the density from like um, a time perspective as well as a geographic one. Fast forwarding to modern day, can you comment on like some of the gaps maybe that you observe in our ecosystem, like where, where we can make the biggest improvements, biggest leaps forward? So there's potentially a bit of recency bias uh, in this for, you know, for where Airtask is at at the moment. But... I guess one thing that I would start with is saying that software engineering in Australia is getting really, really strong, which is great because there's lots and lots of uh, software uh, jobs, I think, being created and, you know, we're really bringing in some great talent and there's just a great deal of maturity here, I would say, forming in software engineering. I think, though, that what that presents then is what's the next layer up in sort of like the hierarchy of needs? Mm. If you kind of look at Maslow's hierarchy in starting a software a company, I'd say the engineering piece is like the absolute base of that hierarchy. If you can't get that right, don't even bother. Um, but the next level up is is sort of like the um, the product management side of things. And I think that, you know, this is an area that's really nascent but developing um, in, um, in Australia. Uh, one of the things I guess I've noticed is there's probably not a strong degree yet of like business responsibility yet in the product management. Um, cycle, uh, sorry, in the product management um, experience that most folks uh, have in Australia. What I mean by that is I think when you get really good at, you know, really sophisticated in product management, you've almost got like products running your profit and loss statement, i.e., you know, being responsible for revenue and, and, and being self-funding and sustainable and pricing and all these kinds of things. So I think we're getting that first layer of product management pretty solid in Australia, which is like, the very foundational um, side of like user experience and making sure that users are really happy. But I think that higher up in that hierarchy is sort of um, getting the, the business side of that uh, really mature too. What, what do you think we're doing really well? I'm assuming you've had, you know, a decent amount of exposure to other ecosystems, other kind of ecosystems around the world. What, is there anything that pops out to you in Australia that would just do better than anyone else? Well, <laughs> this one is almost certainly perhaps a little bit like inwards looking, mm. but we actually do have a an over we over index in the success of like our marketplaces and like classifieds types businesses, i.e. like network effect businesses. If you have a look at like you know seek dot com, like from the first wave of the internet, it's actually like a juggernaut like on a global scale. I think REA, uh, realestate.com.au, also an Aussie homegrown company, juggernaut on a global scale in, in that in that space. And with Airtasker, we are also sort of like in our particular space of sort of like local 
transaction market price, probably punching above um, the weight of what you'd expect, you know, compared to, say, the US and the UK. Mm. What I kind of think uh, here is interesting is that Australia is an awesome pilot market for these kinds of build local, but then, you know, go and build it again um, overseas type models. Mm. Um, I think you can, uh, you know, being a smaller country, you can sort of build a network effect very quickly, um, be able to monetize that network effect uh, quickly, and then you can go and invest that into um, scaling that overseas. And I think we've seen that with Seek, we've seen it with realestate.com. Uh, you know, Menulog was a massive, you know, over-indexer. Um, so, yeah, I think that actually one thing that, you know, um, probably doesn't get as much of a mention because less sexy than sort of like the global day one mega companies is potentially these sort of like local um, businesses that can be replicated again overseas. Yeah, that's a, that's how the US and the UK kind of use Australia as a test market, kind of that kind of thinking, right? Yeah. Um, prove it out here first and then scale it in other countries with larger populations. Do you have an unpopular opinion? Is there something about this about the startup ecosystem that you just firmly believe, uh, but you just can't seem to get other people on the same page? Oh, about the startup ecosystem. Yeah. Look, I would say, the first thing is I would say that like it's a pretty healthy ecosystem. I would say, like I do believe that for the most part, people are out there to help um, other people. I think one of the things that is potentially not that spoken about is the zero sum talent acquisition space, which is that we're all here to help each other until it comes to the fixed zero-sum nature of, um, of talent acquisition. And that's where there's definitely um, a lot of argy-bargy uh, going on between different uh, companies. And it's, um, you know, I think it's actually not a bad thing at the moment because it's actually benefiting employees and making sure that people get paid at the right uh, levels and, and what they're worth. So I think that's a good thing, but it's probably not a very often spoken about uh, topic is uh, how much infighting there is actually to acquire the best talent. Yeah. I, you know, the thing I took out of that is I'm so glad you said argy bargy. <laughs> <laughs> so, <low. laughs> um, so uh, only a few more questions. The, this is the advice question that I ask everybody and we can do this two ways. So one is what advice would you give to a brand new founder? like a fresh founder that came to you tomorrow, what, what one piece of advice would you give him? But also what maybe one piece of advice would you give Tim, you know, 10 years ago? Yeah, I make it, maybe can start with some advice for myself. I think, um, and, and I've actually heard this from other, a couple of other founders who have experienced a similar thing. Um, when you're a founder, often you're not an expert in anything other than what you founded, you know, and, and the problem that you're trying to solve. But you're often not an expert in a lot of areas that you actually have to end up overseeing, assuming that you know you you stay in the leadership of your of your company. Hmm. And it's very easy to lose conviction and start listening to other people too much. And um, I think it's important to be able to like keep conviction without without being closed or not being curious and not being respectful of others. I think it actually can be very easy to go the other way, which is to hire really really smart people. And then actually to listen to them a little bit too much, you know, to, to go um, to, to follow their direction uh, too much. So you've got to maintain a bit of conviction. And that can be really hard to do, um, especially when you're working with people who, frankly, on paper are just amazing. You know, when I look at uh, some of the folks in, in my team, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this person is really, really, really smart. And, and they are. Um, 
that said, you know, I've been working on this same problem for 10 years. So, yeah. you know, you've got to be able to balance out conviction versus also um, staying open. Um, I guess for an early stage uh, founder, the way that I might sort of like open up that um, slightly would be um, that you're going to get advice from like a lot of like externals as well, from mentors and from people you raise money from and all this kind of stuff. And equally there, I think it's easy to want to kind of take on all of those opinions. Um, but then what I started realizing is that heaps of them would be contrarian. You know, some of them would be like, all you got to do is work on the culture, work on that. And someone else would be like, and at the same time, focus all of your energy on growth. <laughs> be like, ah, oh, that's not really possible to do both of those things. So yeah. I think um, you've also just got to know that um, there's probably no right answer and nobody knows it all. So um, again, you've got to you know, form your own opinions and, and pursue them. Before I ask the last question, is there anything that we missed in the story of, you know, the ecosystem, how we kind of got to where we are? Like that you can comment on? No, look, I think we, we covered it a lot. I guess I guess it's one interesting thing, you know, to maybe comment on is like there were like so many people along this journey who, you know, like when you kind of think about the startup ecosystem now, people mention Atlassian, they mention Canva, they mention safety culture. But actually there's this like whole long tail of people who are building some really cool stuff and contributing to this ecosystem in various different ways. Some of those companies didn't scale. Some of them completely went kaput. Others just became small businesses, etc. Mm. But I think it is worthwhile sort of like recognizing all of those um, smaller companies and stories that sort of contributed uh, to this because it isn't it isn't just like Canva and Atlassian and safety culture equals startup ecosystem. It's all the people that are out there giving it a crack, yeah. getting the $25,000 angel check, hiring two people, doing some interesting stuff, maybe selling their company to somebody else, you know, rather than scaling it into some uh, big thing. Yeah. Um, and actually I find that like, that's why the co-working spaces are this kind of great, almost like central hub of, of life. And when you go to these um, uh, co-working spaces and you go to, you know, the Thursday night beer night, which we used to be able to have, you know, before the, before the <laughs> pandemic. Um, that's kind of really the, the beating heart, I would say, of, um, of the startup ecosystem in Australia. Mm. Last question. I'm trying to put together a documentary here that will as wholly and truthfully tell the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. We want, fa- we want people from all corners to listen to the story, investors, founders, academics, policymakers, everybody. Do you have a message for any one of those groups or, or all of them? Like just what... What do they need to hear from Tim? Well, I'd say like one of the biggest things behind like building any sort of ecosystem or movement is that you've you've got to believe and you've got to kind of you've got to talk a little bit ahead of where things are actually at today. Mm. And when I think about it, you know, if you think about Silicon Valley and San Francisco and all that, part of the reason why their hub and their ecosystem is so amazing is because they shout from the rooftops. They keep telling us, hmm. smartest people in the world, we're in a Silicon Valley. This is where it's at. They're making movies about it. They're talking about it. Their government talks about it. Um, I think we need to do that in Australia. Uh, I think we tend to be a little bit more humble and like, oh, no, 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 it's just, you know, don't talk it up too much. You know, rather, you know, rather walk the walk than talk the talk. Yeah. I think talking the talk is kind of important. Yeah. And I think that if, um, you know, we can convince more people from around the world that Australia is a great ecosystem and and that, you know, 
lots of uh, stuff is going on here, then it's sort of self-fulfilling. So I think we've got to start talking a little bit ahead of, of where we're walking. Well, I fully support that idea because that's what I'm trying to do here with Welcome to Day One is is to shout the you know shout it from the rooftop how amazing our founders are. Totally, there's so much going on, and um, you know there's so much awesome stuff that we have done in Australia. Like I mentioned, you know all those Internet 1.0s like the uh, Seeks, yeah. car sales, REA. We kind of don't you know roll them into the story, but they were definitely the early early folks. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.